It's easy to find life on Earth. It surrounds us, and even in the most extreme environments that our planet has to offer, it often thrives. So far, our quest to find life on other planets has been unsuccessful, and the question of whether life exists outside of Earth is one for which we have no definitive answer yet, and it's not even clear whether it's going to be easy or hard to give an answer. In principle, it could be easy. An alien could uh, turn up in a flying saucer and announce itself, or we could receive a message from a distant civilization. Or we might have to do a little bit more work, do a flyby of one of the moons of Jupiter, Enceladus, pick up some water vapor and then find that it's teeming with microbes. But it could be much, much harder still. Our guest this week is Sean McMahon. He's one of the co-directors of the UK Centre for Astrobiology, based here in Edinburgh. And we have a fairly wide-ranging discussion, which is appropriate because this is a field which touches on many things, on chemistry, on physics, astronomy, uh, of course, on biology, but also on questions of philosophy. We begin discussing what is life, for example. But where we end up is with Sean cautioning us that this quest to find life on other planets could be a very painstaking undertaking. It may not be obvious. Life may not come in up to us and sort of proudly say, here I am. It may be that we, we need to accumulate evidence slowly and over the course of many years, even generations, before we can be sure that we've identified life on another planet. As an example of some of the, the problems uh, in store, we can think of one of Sean's particular areas of research into biomorphs. These are things that look lifelike, but are produced abiotically, i.e. without biology. So they could be things that look like cells or mycelium, but are just the products of much simpler chemical reactions. Another example is we can think back to uh, the episode with Gabor de Mokosh, where we talked about Oumuamua, this difficult-to-pronounce asteroid which looks rather like a pencil. And for that reason, many... Uh, people, or some people at least, thought that it was uh, an alien spacecraft. However, Gabor's research shows that actually this kind of pencil, thin pencil-like shape is exactly what you'd expect for a rock which is being abraded by smaller rocks uh, and dust as it, as it moves through space. So we need to be very careful here, but I'm really excited about this field of astrobiology. It's, it's a young field, and it's seeking to answer one of the most important questions that is answerable. Are we alone in the universe? So we may have to buckle up and, and, and wait many years, but I'm really looking forward to follow along with this research. Final note, the UK Centre for Astrobiology has a has a, its own podcast. So if you want to follow along in more detail, and I encourage you to do so, um, you can check out the Tartan Tardigrade. It's on um, iTunes and also on the web, not on Spotify. And with that, this is Multiverses. Sean McMahon, uh, welcome to Multiverses. Thank you. Uh, although it feels a bit odd saying that, given that you've invited me to your, your lovely office filled with rocks and books here in, in the University of Edinburgh. So Edinburgh has the largest astrobiology department in, in the UK. What is it that you study here? Uh, I guess every aspect of what's called astrobiology. So the origin, evolution, distribution of life in the universe. Part of which, of course, is the search for extraterrestrial organisms but that's not all of it. It's also thinking about how life interacts with its planetary and astronomical environment over long time scales, including on the Earth. 
one of the things that strikes me about the term astrobiology is you know we think of zoology as a subfield of biology or mm. ichthyology I was looking up all these last night as a subfield of zoology so that's fish and then there's elasma branchology a subfield of that which is sharks and rays but astrobiology is sort of prior to all those things in the chain it's sort of above i guess mm. biology as we study it generally knows what it's concerned with and it's concerned with things that we have here on on the earth but yeah. the aims of astrobiology are somehow prior to that or, or, or broader the way i think of it is astrobiology is about trying to make connections between biology and the rest of the physical sciences and to really understand how this thing called life whatever it is actually fits into our broader understanding of how the universe works. Because at the moment, we don't really know. We don't know how life starts. We don't know how many different possible forms it could take on different worlds and different conditions. It's just this sort of island that's divorced from the rest of our understanding. And astrobiology is about trying to fix that. Yeah. But I don't think we should get too hung up on the term or the definition of what astrobiology is or, you know, whether it's a discrete discipline or just a kind of meeting place for other disciplines ultimately it's just a word it's convenient at the moment maybe it won't be convenient as our knowledge evolves in some other way in 20 years mm -hmm. um, but the work that astrobiologists are actually doing i think makes contributions to traditional disciplines as well from mm -hmm. microbiology to astrophysics to geology and uh, the important thing is that the science is good whether we call it astrobiology or call it something else yeah you mentioned something that maybe we don't want to get too hung up on as well, but you said whatever life is. Right? Yeah. That's that's kind of what astrobiology is, is looking at where that comes from, where it's going and, and where it could be sustained, I guess, in the in the broadest terms. But how important is it that we understand what we're looking for? Um, do we need a sharp definition of life or is a woolly one or no definition at all? Can we just say, I, I know it when I see it? It's kind of a controversial question. I'm not sure we always do know it when we see it, but um, one thing we do know is, or one thing we know a lot about is the behaviour of life, mm -hmm. what life actually does. We don't necessarily have a general theory of, of biology. Obviously, we understand Darwinian natural selection to be, in a sense, the unifying theory of, of biology, but it doesn't really tell you the difference between life and non-life. I mean... Evolution by natural selection is something that populations do. It's not necessarily something an individual organism can do. Right. So it doesn't really work as a criterion for testing whether a given object is alive. Um, it might be a, a product of natural selection, but perhaps the very first organisms actually weren't because at some stage evolution had to take over um, or materials that had been produced some other way. So, I don't know, every definition of life that's been proposed has some problems. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, in philosophy, coming up with definitions for things, definitions for things isn't always a productive research programme anyway, because definitions in general tend to have flaws and gaps, and you can think of things that kind of break them. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose some people have this idea that life might be such a kind of discrete natural kind that it would be a com comparable with something like water, where, okay, water is H2O. There's no question that we under we have a perfectly 
Mm-hmm. We have a perfect definition for something like water. Yeah, that's what we call, I guess, an analytic definition, right? It's just there is well, you know, no doubt. It's either H2O or it's not water. So yeah. there's never any question. Whereas if we didn't know that water was H2O and we tried to define it based on its observed properties, then it would be much more difficult because its properties are different in different conditions. There's a, you know, you could somebody said to me the other day, it would be as if we were trying to define water by watching, getting as much data as we can about the way the waves come in on the beach. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter how much data you get on the way the waves come in on the beach. You're never going to arrive at a perfect definition of water from, until you have a proper scientific understanding of what water actually is, which is H2O. Yeah. It just might not be possible to get that kind of precise definition when it comes to something something like life, which is such a messy phenomenon where we can imagine forms of life that aren't aren't based on the same chemistry but which intuitively we would want to call life if they have certain behaviours. But again, there isn't a simple list of behaviours that constitute the necessary and sufficient conditions for something being alive. Nobody's really been able to come up with one. Um, so yeah, the whole issue is kind of thorny. There's disagreement even about whether we need a definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, we can do research on the core issues of astrobiology without having a definition, mm. um, and we do. And maybe it will eventually come out of that research that we, we arrive at one, but I'm not too worried about it. No, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd agree that, um, yeah, all of the definitions of, of life that I've seen seem to... I don't know, fail to capture the spirit of what's interesting about life for us. Like you say, mm. there's this famous uh, definition from from NASA 94 where they say, oh, it's um, a chemical system, self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. Yeah. And yeah, you think, well, do I really care that I'm capable of Darwinian evolution or that you're capable Well, of- you by yourself are not, I'm sorry to tell you, because yeah. you're not a population. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's other... I mean, what does self-sustaining actually mean? Nothing alive is self-sustaining. Yeah. Everything requires energy and nutrients from its environment. Um, and, and many things are obviously not self-sustaining. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you've ever tried to keep sea monkeys alive, yeah. you have to do a lot of work. But you're not going to say they don't qualify as being alive. Yeah. I, I guess when they when they came up with that definition, they were maybe trying to capture the distinction between organisms and things like viruses. Yeah. which can only reproduce by hijacking the machinery of the host cell. And so in that very technical, quite specific sense, are not self-sustaining. Yeah. But I'm not convinced, you know, any parasite re- requires something from its host organism. Yeah. We, we still want to acknowledge that parasites are alive. Yeah. So I don't know. And viruses are doing something really interesting that they can only do in the presence of things that we would accept as life proper. So yeah. it's sort of like, well... You know, viruses on the fence, you can put them on yeah. <laughs> either side. and So it seems kind of arbitrary. But I, I guess there is always going to be some issue drawing a line with looking at life because it is something that emerges from non-life. Mm. And presumably it's not like an on switch, right? It's yeah. not like there's nothing there and then it's there. I mean, but, similar to consciousness, right? I think it's going to... Yeah. The features that we're interested in are, are going to come out in degrees, and of course, when people think about alien life, they're always excited about the top of the chain, like some yeah, little yeah. green men. But actually, what we're more likely to find, at least in our own backyard, is something very, very small. And I think it's important to say that it's not some magical, mysterious thing about life that it's so hard to define. Most things are hard to define. Yeah. If you try and define a chair or a table, yeah. you quite quickly run into cases where you're not really sure if it belongs in the category or not. Yeah. Um, definitions are just not the sort of thing that science 
readily produces for the various natural objects that it studies and, and generally doesn't bother even trying. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it's, a, it's an emergent property. I mean, it's interesting, um, you know, one of the approaches... We shouldn't spend too long on this because we want to, but I, I do find it a fascinating topic. But one of the approaches is is this kind of um, uh, constructor um, theory or assembly theory, mm. um, where you look at the number of stages. Yeah, that's right. That, that you'd need to go through some, you know, combining atoms into molecules and molecules into monomers yeah. and and then polymers and and you say, okay, well, it, it's almost um, it's very similar to in my mind, to Kolmogorov complexity exactly. in yeah. um, kind of algorithms where you say, okay, well, this is the minimum number of, this is the, the minimum amount, uh, way that you could express this function. Right. The shortest right? program you can write. The shortest you. program you could write, yeah. So it's I sort think of like it, the shortest it, way you yeah. can assemble something. Um, and of course, well, there's there's problems with that definition in, in my mind because you could probably come up with something extremely complex that just mm. isn't lifelike. But it does capture something, which is that, well, there is going to be a certain arbitrary arbitrariness um, in where you say, oh, now it's sufficiently complex for yes. us to... to That's do. absolutely true. There are minerals, quite rare minerals, whose lattice structure is so complicated that mm. if you actually calculate the number of steps it takes to put atoms into that lattice, yeah. it starts to overlap with certain proteins and certain things that we would think of as biological. Yeah. Um, my favourite little factoid, by the way, about the assembly theory stuff is that when they... So this this is work by Lee Cronin's group in Glasgow. They published mm-hmm. a paper in which they used mass spectrometry to analyse the number of components that basically... So they're sort of doing it in reverse. They're breaking material down and looking at the number of fragments um, that you can make from, as, a, as an indicator of how many steps it takes to put the thing together. Right. And... They analysed a range of different substances, and the most complicated thing that came out in their data set, and they had various organisms, rocks, minerals, different organic compounds and so on, the most complicated thing was beer. <laughs> okay. It's like far far and away more complicated than all the other things, including including even whiskey. That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe beer is what we call, I guess, a techno-signature or something. Like could a, be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something that... Or it could just be more alive than we are, who knows? Yeah. I've got one last thing to say on this, which is that Schrodinger had this, had, had this book, What is Life? Mm. Where frustrating, he doesn't answer the question. He just like asks more questions, and he he hints at some things. You know, entropy is important. Yeah, kind of entropy as he called it. Yeah, entropy. Yeah, which annoyed a lot of people. But um, yeah, there's this aspect of, of sort of stealing energy and mm. or, or free energy. Um, but then and, a fire and does that, of course. And fire, fire has that. Um, but the one thing back onto this point of kind of lattices and so forth, he he kind of second guessed the the structure of DNA before it was. Um, Revealed, so yeah. that is quite impressive. Yeah, and he said, you know, we need some kind of aperiodic um, uh, crystal structure. Yeah, um, and that's going to encode information, and it's it's got to be a pretty solid structure so that it can be passed on, but not so solid that it can't evolve and change, yeah. and also have interesting variation within it. And I think that's quite key. You know, life lives somewhere between complete randomness and complete homogeneity. Yeah. Um, but it's very, very hard to pin down. The fact is there's lots of other things that live on that interface. Not live. There's lots of other things that exist on that interface. Yeah. The kinds of self-organized dissipative structures that form in far from equilibrium conditions, everything from convection cells to the sorts of uh, mineral precipitation processes that we study here, generate really interesting structures that look very biological on that interface but are not yeah. themselves biological. Yeah. For my money, the person who came closest to 
coming up with a properly abstract universal image of what life is might be von Neumann. Mm. I really like the von Neumann machine where you have these sort of entities that are capable of assimilating material from the environment, using it to build a kind of instruction tape together with the machinery necessary for decoding the instruction tape, mm. and then sort of executing the instructions to produce a copy of themselves, including the machinery and the tape. Yeah. And this is something you can write, you can write a computer program to do this. And for me, that's, that's the most satisfying general... I think that's the level of, of, of abstraction you can get to where it's still useful and interesting. Because hmm. um, for me, if we found a, a von Neumann machine that was sort of, let's say, implemented in a different chemistry, mm-hmm. I would be very tempted to, to regard that as alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of works for me. It, I don't know if it qualifies as a definition, but I think it's as close as anybody's really come that, that is still useful, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't know precisely what life is, um, at least in the most general sense, but we've got lots of good examples of, of life on the Earth. It's all, all around us. In one sense, of course, we only have one example. Well, that's true, actually. Or, or, yeah, I suppose that's right. I mean, do we... I guess all the indications are that life has evolved singly on the Earth and everything comes from the same, despite the incredible variation that we see in... Yeah forms we're all cousins we're all cousins and actually under the hood there's a lot of similarities in the way that you know everything's got atp and yeah. if you look at the branching structures in trees and the you know the capillaries in ourselves and so forth well just more fundamentally i mean we were all genetically related to each other you could read that straight from the dna yeah one of the things that kind of blew my mind this year is that you know even chemosynthetic life so life mm. which is not part of the food chain which we're part of um doesn't doesn't ultimately get its energy from the the sun, but from chemicals, typically in hydrothermal vents or, or under the ground. Um, we're all part of the same family. Um, yeah, that's uh, right. Which isn't to say that that there weren't other forms of life at some stage in the history of the Earth, mm-hmm. um, or even that there aren't still somewhere hidden today. I mean, we don't really know. There's this shadow biosphere hypothesis that that kind of postulates. That there are that there might be radically different forms of life, even on the Earth, and we just have, we just don't really know how to find them, mm. which is maybe more useful as a thought experiment than it is plausible as a scientific hypothesis. Um, I imagine that when life began, there there might well have been various sort of different versions of it, which may have arisen more or less independently. Mm-hmm. When, when you start to build an understanding of how life originated very quickly you start to think well it ha- this had to happen or that had to happen and if this had to happen and that had to happen then it probably happened more than once and in slightly different ways and it's you know the more we understand about the origin of life the, the more tempting it is to predict that it would have arisen potentially multiple times with slightly different features and it's just there's no there's not going to be any surviving trace of that now mm. I mean the fossil record isn't good enough to reveal forms of life with slightly different chemistry that appeared maybe transiently around some hydrothermal vent four billion years ago and then disappeared again or got mm. got swallowed up by the rest of the biosphere. Um, so we may never really know for sure. So this is probably a dumb question, but can we even be sure that we are all related? I mean, we know that there's a lot of evolutionary features which have, um, uh, you know, co- convergently evolved. Mm. So yeah. the same thing has popped up 
independently because it's a useful adaptive feature. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how, how certain can we be that we all come from the same random event or I don't know how best to describe it, but the same point of origin? Yeah. Well, I think we could be pretty sure because of the universality of, of the genetic code. Mm-hmm. It is theoretically possible to build the gen- genetic codes in other ways. You can have a different number of base pairs right. in, in, the, in the alphabet, um, and it, would st- it still works. You can, pe- people have sort of tinkered in the lab to show that you can, you can build organisms along different lines that have, by sort of slightly modifying the, the genetic code that they use. And yet all life that we know of on Earth... Um, uses the same code. And if you compare the codes of different organisms, you can fit them into this tree of relatedness, Mm. um, which shows you exactly how things uh, are related evolutionarily. Mm -hmm. And then you can calibrate that against the fossil record to start putting dates on when different branches of the tree diverged. Right. And it's all wonderfully coherent and satisfying, and it fits together beautifully. Of course, there are are always... um, Little little areas of the tree where there's some confusion about um, why, let's say, a, a divergence seems to have happened if you believe the molecular clocks either much earlier or much later than you would think from the fossil record. And there are it's a technically challenging task to do this calibration and, and make it coherent, but but so far it's been very successful. So we can be pretty sure that everything is, you know, there's one tree of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that popped into my head was this chirality um, yeah. I- I- as well, which is uh, just, I guess, everything is either left-handed or right-handed, dep- or depending on whether you're thinking of sugars or... Um, uh, or amino acids. Amino acids, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can actually reconstruct some of the properties of the last universal common ancestor of all living things, mm-hmm. because there's this core set of conserved genes and proteins that all organisms produce, um, or if they don't, we can we can infer how and when it was lost, mm-hmm. so that we can reconstruct what the ancestral set of genes and proteins probably was. It's not easy to do that. It's complicated by the extent of horizontal gene transfer between different branches of the tree of life, which can make things appear more universal than they really are. Um, and you can have characters that are lost and then secondarily acquired mm-hmm. again, and there's this sort of stochastic element, but. Nevertheless, you can say certain things about what what that organism was able to do and which which kind of metabolic cycles it was able to carry out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it obviously wouldn't be possible to do that if it weren't if we weren't starting with organisms that were all related to each other. Mm. Well, let, let's catch that out a little bit. What, what do we, as best we understand it, what do we think that earliest life form was like, and and, and how do we think it came about? In our kind of tech stack of life, I guess. Yeah, of course, that's a different question from what the last universal common ancestor was like, because the first organism was ancestral to that, possibly by, you know, hundreds of millions of years, maybe. Well, t- take us back as far as you... Uh, but the first organisms, I mean, it it's quite likely, I think, that they were... Um, well, that they would have been, they would have been chemosynthetic microorganisms. Mm-hmm. They would have had... Um, a cell membrane that was recognisably similar to the cell membranes of of, um, of microorganisms, microorganisms that we find on the Earth today. Mm-hmm. They would have had um, some 
genetic code that was, depending on which model you go along with, either based on RNA or DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have needed to assimilate nutrients from their environment, and they would have needed some source of energy that was quite likely to have been um, the reaction between carbon dioxide and, and hydrogen, although we don't know that absolutely for a fact. Um, there are models of how, particularly in alkaline hydrothermal vents, metabolism of this kind might have begun. Mm-hmm. Um the cell membrane is probably, in some sense, the easiest part of the puzzle because um, fatty acids more or less spontaneously organize themselves into little vesicles. Okay. Um, what's so that, difficult? That's easy to make, but you need to get the right stuff inside it. What's exactly? What's really difficult is to figure out how these different systems became kind of coupled to each other, mm-hmm. so that um, you have cells that are reproducing and are correctly passing on and inheriting. Um, the machinery that they need so that they can carry on metabolizing and assimilating nutrients and at some point repairing damage and mm. you need to kind of couple the, the this sort of reproductive system the metabolic system uh, the homeostatic machinery and get it all kind of working together yeah that's where it, that's where it's kind of technically quite challenging to figure out exactly how this could have happened I mean is it just a case of you know rolling the dye enough you're creating a lot of cell membrane type yeah, structures yeah. you also maybe have some rna or dna type things yeah. that are in this kind of soup and yeah. uh, i'm sh- i'm sure yeah i think there's there's obviously a huge random element here where you have we don't, we don't take this too literally but in a sense you know, millions of failed experiments per second yeah um it's not like nature is trying to produce life, but it's it's this sort of chemistry is happening, and at some point, just by chance, because of the law of large numbers, yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna start it's gonna generate something that that has the right balance of of um, structures and properties as it's able to start reproducing itself in this synchronized way. Um, and it might be sort of vanishingly improbable, in which case. Uh, I mean that's totally consistent with the evidence that we have yeah. since we've never found life anywhere else and since we wouldn't be here if, if it hadn't happened Yeah. so the probability can be as low as you like and we're still in the realm of what's consistent with the evidence mm. there, are also, there are certain other events in the history of life on earth that may also have been sort of staggeringly unlikely and the obvious one would be the origin of the eukaryote cell mm. which involved uh one microorganism being consumed by another one, and rather than being digested and destroyed, it was able to carry on living inside its sort of new host organism mm-hmm. um, and reproduced in in sync with its host organism and became a kind of um, symbiont that ultimately was just assimilated into the host so that you can no longer say where the host ends and where the yeah. symbiont begins. So this is mitochondria. So mitochondria... The power station of cells. Yeah, chloroplasts. It's not... Somehow the, the nucleus may have arisen out of some of these symbiotic events. That's not very well understood at the moment. But if that hadn't happened, and it seems to have only happened... At least the acquisition of mitochondria and the origin of the eukaryote cell seems to have happened only once. There's Eukaryotes have their own sort of single tree that's nest, nested within the larger tree of life. Right. There aren't multiple different origins of eukaryotes. Even though it could presumably happen any time. Yeah. Um, it only seems to have happened once. 
So if, if that hadn't happened, we, we'd still have Archaea, which are, you know, uh, in many ways way more varied than eukaryotes. They and like really good at living in lots of places and um, surviving. But they're not going out building spaceships. Yeah, Netflix, we'd still have microorganisms, but we would never have would never have achieved large organisms capable of building complicated, differentiated tissues and all the rest of it. Multicellular life. Okay, so life, as we know it, is pretty diverse, but still just a single point of origin. Let, let's talk about the kind of tech stack that we know for life at the moment. So we're kind of carbon-based water is important, um, there's a few, a uh, handful of other elements that are really important. In fact, I think it's like six elements or something account for 99% of the, of the, of the biomass. Um, so we have a kind of good idea of, of the ingredients that are working here on Earth. But as I understand it, even, even trying to look for those and, and use that kind of fingerprint elsewhere, um, you know, that, that's pretty hard. But that's probably our first... It, is that sort of the most obvious place to look, I guess, if we, if we want to find either another instance of life of originating here on Earth or if we're looking elsewhere? So it's not even clear. So there's a related issue which comes back to something you said earlier, that there's this fuzzy boundary between life and non-life. It must have been the case that on the early Earth or wherever the origin of life actually happened, there was some kind of a transition from fairly complex but not biological organic carbon chemistry to biology and we can argue about where exactly we want to draw that line but wherever you draw the line you have the same problem that there's stuff on one side of the line that looks very much like the stuff on the other side of the line mm -hmm. so wherever you draw the line you have this difficulty of, make, of drawing any real distinction between prebiotic chemistry as we say and biological chemistry mm -hmm. and so when we're looking out into the universe and finding quite complex organic chemistry it's going to be hard for us to say: Is this life, or is this just maybe the sort of chemistry that could have given life to, could have given rise to life, mm. but perhaps didn't, mm -hmm. in the environment where we're looking? And this is going to be particularly difficult in the context of Mars, where we are going to be extracting from rocks four billion years old a suite of organic molecules which may be quite complicated and quite reminiscent of biology, and it's going to be difficult to know whether it actually is there the remains of biology or is it the remains of the sorts of chemistry which on earth led to biology but maybe on mars didn't yeah um so yeah it's difficult i guess in some ways like we said um in the absence of a perfect definition of life it, it almost needs to be the last explanation once we've exhausted oh it's it's not uh let's say geophysics right yeah um or um just organic chemistry but yeah. without these additional things that we're we're, we're interested in so yeah. i guess you kind of yeah need to exhaust the other possibilities um to be really sure but are there i mean what sort of things like if we went to mars what what stuff are they looking for exactly so it's you know complicated organic molecules um, yeah are there particular within that is there can we narrow down a bit i mean it's not just the molecules first of all it's basically they're looking for fossils broadly mm -hmm. construed yeah. which might include structural remains of cells or colonies of microorganisms, which we know have a fossil record on the Earth. Yeah. So they might find things that are just recognisably fossils, which maybe they won't be able to see until they get these samples back and put them under the microscope. Yeah. Or maybe in some very, very optimistic scenarios, they will actually see things with the cameras on the instrument, 
that correspond to the kind of macroscopic expression of communities of microorganisms. So I have on my desk here, for example, uh, an ancient stromatolite. Okay, so I've, I've read a lot about these. Yeah. I've not seen one in the, the flesh, as so it were. You can see it's got, got it's a polished slab of rock that's got these sort of branching tree-like structures in the polished face, which um, are kind of capped by these dome-like layered features. Hmm. And this is a product of microbes that lived on the seafloor several hundred million years ago that were trapping and binding sediment grains and mm -hmm. precipitating calcium carbonate around the cells to form a basically kind of living rock that grew upwards as the microbes had to keep moving towards the light. And these sort of large mushroom-like rocky structures that they formed, stromatolites, are often large enough that if they exist on Mars, the rover cameras would be able to see them. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because to the untried eye, which mine is, that looks like a rock. <laughs> well, it is a rock. It is a rock. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, but it looks like it's never been been living, is what I want to say. Yeah. And, um, but I suppose we, we can be really confident that um, you know, stromatolites are a good uh, biosignature, um, to use the kind of term of art. So, because we have living ones yes. now as well. We have living ones, and sometimes the fossil ones have the fossil microorganisms trapped inside them. Although... I wouldn't say that the stromatolite sort of shape or structure is by itself mm -hmm. a completely compelling biosignature because there are ways that non-biological processes can make structures very much like that. Yeah. Some of which have been studied experimentally. And here's, a, here's another fun sort of factoid. Uh, a real impetus for this line of research was the observation paint in car factories building up around where the cars were being sprayed. Mm -hmm doesn't form just flat layers of paint on the floor like you might expect. Instead, it builds up into these remarkable convex columns, domes, branching structures. Oh, wow. And this comes out of the kind of physics of particle deposition in a way that you can, uh, you can actually quite easily simulate with some computer code. And it's just a general property of systems where you have the deposition of lots of small particles that are sticky in the right way, that they right. form these rather complex branching growth structures and you can do the same thing for yourself if you have a can of spray paint and you just spray it on, onto a table mm -hmm. maybe use a couple of different colors so that you can build up layers that you can see mm -hmm. you'll find that it doesn't just make a flat layer of paint but it makes this rather interesting sort of knobbly structure which if you cut into it will look a lot like stromatolite mm. So the shape by itself is maybe not diagnostic, but there are other features you can look at. Real stromatolites tend to have a characteristic spacing mm -hmm. between them that comes from the fact that these are communities of organisms that depend on light mm -hmm. and can't grow if they overshadow each other. Mm -hmm. So they tend to organise with this sort of spacing, like eggs sitting in an egg, cart um, egg carton. Um, you can look for microfossils inside, you can look for certain organic molecules inside, and ultimately the hope is that if we do find evidence of life on Mars, it might consist of several different lines of evidence that all agree with each other, any one of which by itself you might query. But if you have enough lines of evidence that are mutually independent but mutually supportive, it can kind of push the balance of probabilities high enough that you can be reasonably confident you found life. Then I think for most sort of feasible scenarios, it's always going to be, there's always going to be a bit of room for doubt. And the job is to try and make that room as small as possible. Yeah, this maybe seems like a good time to mention LH8401 because, uh, I mean, that was a case, so this this asteroid that was um, 
picked up in Antarctica in 1984. Um, and then a decade or a bit more later, um, they found lots of evidence that there was life inside. That's right. But then it turned out to be not as compelling as, as was thought. That's right. I remember being nine years old and seeing on the television news Bill Clinton on the lawn of the White House announcing to the world America had found fossils from Mars. Brilliant. Yeah. And it was very exciting. The journalists, incidentally, at this press conference were not excited at all. And <laughs> you can find a clip on YouTube. The first question they ask him is not anything to do with life on Mars. It's about some measure that was going through Congress at the time to do with abortion laws. Kind of sad that this was... Yeah. They just um, were so blithe about the whole thing. But anyway, so there were structures inside that meteorite that looked... a kind of like bacterial cells, although mm-hmm. rather on the small side, composed of minerals. There were globules of carbonate minerals that looked similar to what happens where you have microorganisms producing carbon dioxide that mineralizes around them. There were magnetite crystals, so an iron oxide, mm. that had a prismatic shape quite similar to the magnetite particles that certain bacteria form inside their cells. Mm-hmm. And there were and there were yeah. there were hydrocarbon compounds. Mm-hmm. Um, which, although they weren't very complex organics, could have been the kind of altered remains of mm-hmm. what was originally biomass. That was the hypothesis. So any one of these lines of evidence by itself you might query, but to have so many lines of evidence all seeming to point to life was thought to be pretty compelling. Yeah. I mean, like, there was always some doubt. Nobody ever said this is 100% watertight, even even when the first announcement was made. And even even in Bill Clinton's speech, there's a line about you know, more tests will need to be done. And, and of course, what actually happened is that the tests, the tests were done and none of these lines of evidence actually held water in the end. The things that looked like fossil cells turned out to be uh, the edges of kind of crystal lattice planes, which where they kind of appear on the surface can look a kind of like little worms, mm. combined with the effects of coating the sample for electron microscopy that can kind of make things look more round because they're being mm. coated. The organic compounds or hydrocarbon compounds turned out to be a combination of probable contamination mm. and some organic compounds that actually did come from Mars but and were formed by non-biological chemical reactions. Mm. And you can tell this from the way that they're associated with certain minerals that are also produced by those same reactions. Mm-hmm. So if you look on a really fine scale, you can see that where these carbon compounds are is also where these minerals are that tell us about these reactions. So unfortunately, not biology... The magnetite crystals seem to be the product of the shock decomposition of iron carbonate minerals in the kind of heat and pressure of the, or particularly the shock pressure of the impact event that sent this thing on its way to Earth. Mm. Um, And the carbonate globules turned out to be the product of hydrothermal mineral precipitation processes. So every one of those lines of evidence ended up falling down. So there are probably still some holdouts in the community who would still claim that this, on balance, looks like evidence of life. Mm -hmm. But I think the... If there's a consensus now, it's that actually no, this was mm. this was a very misleading, very unfortunate kind of false positive. Mm. Well, in some ways it was. I mean, so there's a cautionary tale there for sure. Yeah. But it it surprises me that you know, despite the the those journalists on the White House lawn not seeing impressed, the the lasting effect of this seems to have been like a reinvigoration of the astrobiology program. Yeah. At least at least that's what I've heard it as. And, and so the kind of first impression we had life um, is kind of what what matters. Whereas if one thinks back to Viking, um, where 
you know, they sent to Mars uh, some experiments which weren't particularly well thought out. And I think the people who, who built those experiments were like, actually, you know, we wanted to do something slightly different and NASA just wanted to go kind of gung-ho looking for life. Whereas, um, well, in hindsight, what would, what would have happened with Viking is that they would have looked at more basic questions like what is what is the chemistry here? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the, the Viking results came back and were kind of disappointing because people were, had really high expectations. They didn't see anything. I, on reflection, yeah. they weren't so, so bad. They weren't so damning as that at all. Um, but there was a little bit of a kind of astrobiology winter, I suppose, after that in which... Everyone was slunk off. And uh, yeah, it seemed that the research was somewhat depressed after that. So yeah, I don't know. There's also a first impressions count in a kind of PR. There's a lot to unpack here. I mean, astrobiology has sort of been born twice out of NASA initiatives. The first time it was called exobiology. Mm. And this would have been around 1960. And at that time, a big um, sort of stimulus was the recent, well, then recent result that there seemed to be vegetation on the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. And an, a Harvard astronomer called William Sinton had observed features in the spectrum of Mars mm. that seemed to appear when Mars was showing us its darker regions mm. and disappear when it was facing the other way. And that it had long been thought that the darker features that you could see on the surface of Mars, which kind of come and go with the seasons, must be vegetation. And the features that were observed by Will, William Sinton in the, in the spectrum corresponded to organic molecules. Mm. Um, and this was cited as an important result by people like Josh Lederberg, who were really influential in sort of getting NASA to do exobiology. Later, it turned out that actually these features were not on Mars. They were water vapor in Earth's atmosphere along the line of sight um, in the telescope observations. Um, And actually, it turns out that heavy water, so water with a bit of deuterium in it, has absorption features around three microns in the spectrum, the same place as organic molecules. Yeah. So this was all a mistake, and yet it was it probably played an important role in the origin of of exobiology. Yeah. Uh, at NASA, and then you could argue that the this meteorite, um, ALH eight four zero zero one, was also kind of interpreted in a mistaken way, but also played a really important role. Yeah. In the kind of second origin of astrobiology. Yeah. Because not long after that. You know, NASA got a bit more funding to do astrobiology, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute started, and astrobiology started to take off as a field. But a, a more positive framing of the whole narrative would just be to say these observations were not understood because the relevant science hadn't been done. Yeah. And the consequence of these observations being made was that people started to put the resources in to get the relevant science done. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I guess the thing about cautionary tales is that almost by definition, you learn from them. Yeah, and we've learned a lot from the study of of that meteorite. Yeah, um, and we now have the the scientific understanding to explain some of those features and to think more in a more subtle and sophisticated um, way about how to find evidence of life. Mm. And a lot of that understanding comes from the fact that NASA injected a lot of cash into astrobiology. So, yeah, it's an interesting story. Yeah, I think it's. Um... I mean, one of the lessons, or one of the things it highlights is just how hard it is. Like, I don't think anyone was doing bad science here. Like, Sinton, his hypothesis was a pretty good one, but he just didn't yeah. know that you yeah, could right. have deuterium in the atmosphere. Right? Who, who would have thought yeah. that just by coincidence, heavy water has these features in just the same place as organic molecules? Yeah. It's just a really annoying coincidence. Yeah. So it just, I mean, it, it shows that kind of level of, um, yeah, both caution and, I don't know, uh, breadth of knowledge mm. that one needs in the astrobiology community to 
to really um, yeah. check out these things. There are lots of these cautionary tales, but I don't think that's really a problem. In, in, in a way, that's mm. just sort of how we learn. You look at the history of any science, yeah, and you'll see mistakes being made, yeah. or things that in hindsight we now understand to be mistakes, yeah, but were logical interpretations based on the understanding people had at the time. And it's just, you know, that's how science makes progress. And this is, um, we scratch a lot of my kind of general itches on the, on the field, but I, I really want to come on to some of your work because it completely touches on this issue of, mm. or makes contact with it in, in that you're trying to look for the things which look like life, but aren't life. I guess to sort of make us streetwise, as it were. And yeah. so we, we, we don't kind of go out there and be like, I've got it. And like, yeah. oh, no, this is like paint on the wall of a garage. <laughs> yeah, I think... So here's a way of framing it that was put to me by an astrophysicist, Kevin Heng, um, at Munich. He said, um, searching, for, searching for life, what we're really doing is looking for a signal above a baseline. Mm-hmm. We're looking for an anomaly above some baseline, whether we're talking about the spectrum of light captured from an exoplanet or the complexity of shapes that we can measure in the lab. In order to recognize the signal, you need to know what the baseline is. Yeah. So in order to recognize life, you need to know what are the non-biological processes doing in that environment that, are gen- that might generate interesting things that are not life. And it's it struck me and it's a few other people as well that most work that's been done in astrobiology has, has been focused on what the signal might look like. Might mm-hmm. look like. Very little has been focused on what the baseline looks like mm-hmm. in these environments where we're looking for life. Yeah. Um, and if you all of these cautionary tales, and I've got a list somewhere of like twenty of them, and we've only touched on two or three. In every case, there was something about the baseline that had been missed. Yeah. And so, I think it's reasonable enough in a field that has thousands of people working in it for somebody to put the effort in yeah. to thinking about what the baseline is going to look like in these contexts where we're looking for life. So, if we're looking for organic molecules on Mars, what are the non-biological organic molecules going to look like? Mm. If we're looking for the shapes of microorganisms that have been replaced by minerals and fossilized. What are the shapes of those minerals going to be that are not fossils? Um, if we're looking at spectra from exoplanets, what features of those spectra are going to be produced by gases in the atmosphere that have nothing to do with life, or minerals on the surface that have nothing to do with life? Yeah. And it seems to me that these questions are kind of logically prior to any detection of life. We need to know the baseline to recognize the signal, and so that's what I work on. Yeah. You're using surprisingly old um, techniques, I guess, to look at this quite new new problem. So, um, yeah, take us through some of the things that you do to produce beautiful um, things that look lifelike, or well, biomorphs. Yeah, so one, one example is, is the chemical garden. Mm-hmm. Um, this is such an old um, area of science that it, in a way, predates modern science and comes out of the alchemy that was being done in the 17th century, mm. when... Um, sort of European scholars realised that certain reactions would generate tree-like structures that you could see growing before your eyes. Mm. And to them it was kind of proof that there's this sort of rudimentary vitality in all matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this this was the time when people believed in, spon- in spontaneous generation and stuff like that. Um, we now understand that these processes are the consequence of uh, just physics and chemistry. Um, but if I can describe to you what the experiment looks like, you take some some crystal grains about the size of, sizes of um, grains of salt that you might have in your salt shaker. You drop them into a, into a liquid, which is water glass, an alkaline sodium silicate solution. And then that's it. 
you just watch and what happens is that these crystal grains as they start to dissolve into the liquid um, produce a little kind of bag-like membrane around themselves um, which is sort of flexible and porous and pressure builds up on the inside of this membrane until it eventually ruptures and you get these finger-like jets of fluid coming out mm. which spontaneously um, are sort of wrapped around by a new membrane that grows along the walls of these fingers. So you end up with tubes radiating from a central blob which corresponds to where the crystals originally were and the tubes continue to grow um, outwards from that central blob and they can branch like mm. in a tree-like way and the, the branches can converge and join back together again like a fungal mycelium mm. um, and the whole thing just takes place in minutes and then the last thing that happens is that the this sort of gelatinous membrane um, becomes encrusted by crystals of metal oxides, so like iron oxides, so that you end up with, instead of this flexible bag-like thing, a solid object that's kind of brittle, mm -hmm. which is sort of these little hollow tubes and branching tubes made of made of solid minerals, which, if you do the experiment on the right scale, are almost indistinguishable from the metal oxide tubes that certain bacteria will make, for example. Mm. So one area of my work has been to investigate um, whether this type of chemistry could take place on the early Earth or early Mars and how we can differentiate between these microscopic but completely inorganic mineral growth structures on the one hand and real fossil microbes on the other hand. Mm. And it, I mean, these seem like really interesting experiments in their own right, like whether or not we're interested in just demarcating that that uh, or, or de delineating, I guess, that, that baseline. Yeah. You were discovering really interesting things about how how quite simple processes can produce wonderful structures. Yeah, um, the chemistry is quite simple. The physics is actually quite complicated, the right. fluid dynamics and so on. But, but yeah, it's one thing you realize when you start attending to the baseline is how interesting the non biological universe is and how many complicated, mm -hmm. surprising completely unintuitive things form out there in nature that have nothing to do with life. Yeah. One thing I do I do wonder is, yeah, could we discover something as interesting as life from an anthropocentric perspective? Yeah. That, that's non-life. Um, the, the thing that's sort of coming back to this Darwinian evolution point, um, you're saying, well, what's so important about Darwinian evolution? And we should say that it's the thing which seems to not just add noise over time, but although it's a random process in a sense, mm. it, it does produce something something directed. And actually, a previous guest of mine was um, Simon Kirby talking about language evolution and mm. modelling language uh, as an organism. And, and remarkably, you can start off with some completely random, unstructured mapping between sounds uh, or you know some kind of symbols and uh, the world, and then just as a process of evolving that mapping through through subsequent generations of yeah of learners um, who have kind of constraints, it, it will develop structure. Maybe that's why the Darwinian point is so interesting and, and, and why perhaps there's kind of a limit to how interesting you can get with the abiotic structures. Absolutely. Um, evolutionary algorithms, as you probably know, are quite an important engineering tool. But more generally, um, natural selection is the only way that we know nature can make structures of, of the order of complexity that organisms are. Mm. 
However, a fossil can be much, much, much simpler than an organism. Mm. And if we're looking at for evidence of life on Mars, for example, most of the biological information is, is lost, is gone. Mm. What's left behind is a far simpler kind of residue. We have relatively simple molecules, relatively simple structures, maybe some isotopic anomalies associated with that. But you've lost that fingerprint of Darwinian evolution, which is that massive degree of complexity that we see in living cells. Mm. Now, it took us until the 1850s to get natural selection kind of figured out, let's mm. say. Uh, so that's relatively late in the history of modern science. And even if you understand natural selection, it doesn't really give you the ability to predict that life would have the, the, the diversity and complexity that it has. Mm. Because basically we're not that smart. Right, you could you could have if you imagine this is quite a complicated thought experiment, but imagine that you were born without any sense of of the fact that you yourself are an organism, mm. um, and without any access to the living world, and you would I don't know kept in a concrete box, but given a thorough understanding of physics, mathematics, chemistry, and the logic of natural selection, mm. there's no way that you would guess that something like even a bacterium, the simplest form of life we can think of, would come into ex into existence as the end of that's one end of that process. Yeah. Because, you know, we're just not, not that imaginative. Yeah. There's a really nice p poem by um, by a Polish Nobel Prize winning poet that's kind of along this along these lines about how you, you would never have anticipated a blade of grass or a strawberry or yeah. an insect. From, from the best possible understanding of the, of the logical evolution until you'd found them. Yeah. And I think we might be in that same situation with respect to all kinds of things in the universe. Right. Where it doesn't matter how smart we are, how good our astrophysics is, how good our geophysics is, how good our chemistry is. If we're talking about the endpoints of very, very long evolutionary processes, mm. we're not smart enough to guess what's going to be thrown up. Yeah. So we have to explore. And the, the same might be true of processes other than evolution, that they can produce things that yeah. we just never would have guessed. And I think that's what we see yeah. from exploring the baseline. Yeah. You find things that are so unbelievably similar to life in their sort of superficial qualities Yeah. that you just wouldn't, if, unless you'd seen it with your own eyes, you wouldn't believe it was possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so maybe maybe we will find something as exciting as life. I think it's, yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends what you're excited by. Well, yeah. We'll certainly find stuff that we couldn't possibly have predicted that we would find. Yeah. I mean, there's basically every space mission ends up doing that one way or another. I mean, who knew that Pluto was going to be so complicated? Yeah. We were expecting a cratered ball of rock, and instead we found this wonderfully dynamic world with yeah. dunes and convection cells exposed on the surface with this wonderful polygonal pattern, and all these sort of interesting landscapes shaped by the way that nitrogen and ammonia behave at very, very low temperatures. Yeah. They're just a complete surprise. Yeah, yeah. And that was only, what, 2015 or something? It does make me wonder, given that we are so unimaginative, I mean, coming back to this um, kind of tech stack, even with this kind of simple, even if we assume that carbon is the right um, the right basis for life, which I, I think is a good assumption, although I do want to throw out, you know, this, you know, wonderful ideas of science fiction writers. I love the story by Ted Chang of Exhalation, which is, I don't know if you know this I one. I don't know this one. Um, but it's, um, 
machines with a lot of tubes, but their kind of free energy is a pressure difference. Okay. And so their like their brain is a, a set of kind of pumps and stuff, and they realise that they're thinking slower, but it's just because the pressure difference is uh-huh. is, is kind of. Um, they're losing that. I guess that, that Cartesian gradient. machine feels like. So it's a really nice way of like highlighting the kind of en- the free energy um, aspect to life. Um, but of course, then there's you know, Fred Hoyle's Black Cloud and yeah. um, was it Dragons Dragons Egg? Yeah, um, we teach our students about some of these things. I mean, should we treat these as 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 sci-fi or um, you know should we take them seriously? Like, do you teach them to your students for fun or is it like you know this is something that We've well, got to hedge our bets here. there's a couple of different um, reasons why we might want to think about these things. One reason might be kind of precisely what we were just talking about: trying to make sure that we're open-minded, that we're that we're as imaginative as we can be, mm. that we don't shut down lines of inquiry because we we have too conservative a view about what life might be. Mm. Um, nobody wants to be too conservative about what life might be. Um, However, the fact is, we have limited resources, we have limited observing time, mm. we have limited time in general, and there are there are kind of much lower hanging fruit that we yeah. can pluck yeah. in our observations of the universe, given that organic molecules and water are so common, and yeah. as it turns out, rocky planets in the habitable zones of their parent stars yeah. are so common. Yeah. To me, it makes complete sense to at least focus the majority of our astrobiological research on these well-understood scenarios where we have admittedly only this one biosphere to go on, but at least we know that that form of life is possible. Yeah. yeah. Does, does that mean we should be closed-minded about other scenarios? No. But just as a matter of pragmatic utility, um, I think we need to look for the thing that we understand something about how to look for, maybe first. Yeah. Uh, we'll give the weight of our, of our effort to that. Um, while at the same time, you know, continuing to explore because the solution to the problem of not being able to imagine stuff is to go out and explore the universe and see what you actually find. Um, and this, I think, is a somewhat different um, activity from science, strictly speaking. I think it's it's very worthwhile just to go and look and see what you find without worrying about whether you're testing a hypothesis mm. um, or whether you have well-defined scientific research objectives. And... Um, Sometimes these these things can be slightly in tension, mm. which I think is a bit unfortunate. Sometimes the reason for going to look at an environment should just be we haven't really looked at it before, um, rather than that we have a really nicely defined, well-considered kind of model of how a certain phenomenon may or may not take place there that we want to test. Mm. We need to do both things. I forget the quote, but I think it was Shelley who said something, you know, science starts in poetry. That idea traces back to the, to the Greeks as as well but I think you're absolutely right that on both points firstly that um, there needs to be a spirit of inquiry which is kind of pre-scientific yeah. um, and, and gives that kind of inspiration yeah. to science but but on your first point as well that you know let, let's look in the obvious places first and astrology is still really young in, in, in many ways we only fir- confirmed the first exoplanet in 1995 uh, but since then like Kepler just looking at a quarter of one percent of the the sky, and just focused on our galaxy, um, has found coming up to three thousand confirmed exoplanets, with mm. a, a bunch of them in what we call the habitable zone. So within that kind of carbon-based uh, way of life, in the place where we think it 
that could work, right? Yeah. Um, so there's there's already, you know, it's just been an explosion in the number of places where we could look. And I suppose we've we've just not had the tools. Like we're only now building the telescopes that will be able to do the um, spec, 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 yeah, look at the spectral bands yeah. <laughs> from those <laughs> uh, from those planets uh, and figure out, you know, does it look like there's some vegetation there that's uh, photosynthesizing and um, you know absorbing relevant wavelengths um, does it look like there's something which is putting uh, unusual concentrations of complicated hydrocarbons into the yeah. atmosphere I think it's it, it's tempting to just sort of want to jump to the end of what will actually be a long scientific program that probably mm. takes place over several generations before we get clear answers mm. I don't buy this line that we're going to know that there's life in the universe within 20 years Mm. And we might get lucky, but I think it's sort of foolish to set set up that expectation in people's minds. Mm. Not least because we still don't know enough about the baseline in these contexts. Mm. There's even an argument that before we even start trying to analyse habitable planets, we should start by analysing uninhabitable planets Mm -hmm. so that we have an understanding of just how diverse and complex and different from each other planetary atmospheres can be in environments where we know there's no life, at least no life as, as we would normally conceive it. So I don't know, I'm not sure I totally buy that argument, although I think it's it's along the right lines. What, what's actually going to happen is that we're going to find surprises, we're going to find anomalies, we're going to find molecules we didn't expect to find in atmospheres where it may even be hard to imagine how a life could possibly be producing them, but we just can't think of anything else mm. because the science hasn't been done yet. I mean, this this situation's already arisen uh, at least three times F- first with methane on Mars then with phosphine on Venus and then with possible DMS in K218b where you know you can some of these detections are not very robust and mm. but people have jumped very quickly to the conclusion that it could be life and maybe it could be but I just don't think that conclusion is motivated until we have a much better understanding of the physics and chemistry of these environments so I think it's important that people be cautious and circumspect and don't necessarily believe the first press release that gets put out about these things because usually when the truth comes out it's much less exciting than than the journalists wanted it to be yeah Um, but that's I'm not being pessimistic I just think these things take time Mm. and as you say this is quite a young field and we're only just beginning to be able to get the kinds of data that we need let alone understand and interpret those data correctly so let's be patient i think is the bottom line i think that's an important psychological um call to arms in some ways that this could be as you say multi-generational process almost like updating your you know bayesian updating as you go exactly um yeah and it might be a very slow incremental process yeah where even though we have some suggestive evidence it takes a lot more follow-up work over a long time to get that posterior probability above your threshold of credibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I can imagine. Yeah, we we find some things with the next generation telescopes, but then that's it. Oh, actually, we need a new telescope or a new experiment. Um, those things take a yeah. long time to build and fund. I think a Bayesian idea, sort of approach is the right way to go. And in this respect, I may be actually less negative about things than some colleagues. So you mentioned earlier on that. Maybe life should only be the hypothesis of last resort. Mm. And I don't actually agree with that. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's unscientific just to say this hypothesis is like intrinsically unacceptable. Mm. I think we just need to follow the evidence wherever it points. 
And if the evidence isn't very good, then it motivates only a small adjustment to our Bayesian, you know, probabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still motivates some adjustment. Um, and hopefully over time, the evidence will get better and, and accumulate in one direction. You, you read a fun paper called um, uh, on, on, on Carl Sagan's famous dictum. Yeah. Uh, extraordinary, extraordinary hypotheses or extraordinary claims. Extraordinary claims or? require extraordinary evidence. Yeah. Yeah. This gets wheeled out a lot, and I don't agree with it. Yeah, it's well, it's a nice pithy, you know. Yeah, I mean, okay, so it is. It's it. It definitely is correct in certain contexts. So Mm -hmm. if you have a hypothesis uh, which has a low prior probability, then you can see straight away from Bayes' theorem that you're going to need evidence that has uh, certain properties in order to get that posterior probability above the line. You're going to need evidence that you would only get if if the hypothesis were true, that you're not going to get otherwise. So there's that formal logical sense in which if your hypothesis has a low prior probability attached to it, then yes, it requires evidence that you might say is extraordinary. Also, if you have a hypothesis, the truth of which would entail the falsehood of many other things that are well known to be true, like maybe your hypothesis is that horoscopes work, yeah. Well, if that were true, then a lot of what we know about physics has to be wrong. Yeah. So it's harder to just assign a probability to that. Yeah. But, but it's an extraordinary claim that would require extraordinary evidence because the evidence would somehow have to uh, uh, overbalance all the evidence that we already have for our existing understanding of physics. Yeah. But the discovery of, ex- of extraterrestrial life isn't like either of those situations. Mm. Extraterrestrial life the existence of extraterrestrial life doesn't conflict with any well-understood physics and chemistry, mm-hmm. doesn't require us to rewrite the textbooks on physics, and it's also not something to which we can just straightforwardly assign a very low prior probability. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the Drake equation, which perhaps you shouldn't, but you can. <laughs> I have an issue with the Drake equation, but we'll come at it. So it's, it's this, this, this idea that you can, you know, if you multiply the number of... Um, stars by the fraction of those that have habitable planets by the fraction of those that develop life by the fraction of those forms of lives that develop something that we can actually observe and so on you get to the end of this multiplication you come up with a number that tells you how many uh, observable civilizations or observable forms of life we might predict that we're going to be able to see yeah and the reason i bring this up is just that the uncertainties attached to each one of the terms in the equation are such that you can end up with any number you want yeah but that in itself tells you that we can't straightforwardly assign a low probability. Yeah. Because the evidence we currently have allows us to put basically any number yeah. on how much extraterrestrial life there could be that we could observe. Yeah. So for these reasons, I don't think the existence of extraterrestrial life just by itself is an extraordinary claim in the sense that would be required for Sagan's pithy dictum actually to apply to it. Yeah. So I think the right response when you see a press conference about extraterrestrial life has been discovered isn't to say I'm not going to allow that because that's an extraordinary claim yeah the right response is to say how good actually is the evidence yeah how much do we actually understand about the abiotic processes operating in the environment that this data comes from and if necessary make some proportionate adjustment to your to your beliefs yeah which can be a very small adjustment if the evidence isn't very good Um, but that's the rational way to proceed yeah very quickly on the Drake equation, one, one thing it seems to be missing, so I think one of the terms is um, proportion of intelligent life. Uh, you get to that and then you're like, and 
the number of you know the, the number of the intelligent life or the proportion that then develops the ability to communicate but there, there's a term which doesn't seem to account for our ability to recognize the communication as such right and so mm. I, i'm just you know if life is um operating on a very different time scale yeah um you know we just might not see it and it could be super intelligent yeah. it could be so rapid or so slow uh, there's two time scales you have to think about one is the time scale for which that civilization is actually producing stuff and yeah. the other one is the time scale for which the stuff it produces can be observed yeah and if it makes let's say there's this hypothetical idea that extraterrestrial life might produce kind of autonomous robot probes that can reproduce themselves and spread to the galaxy yeah these could have an it, indefinitely extended lifespan long yeah. after the civilization itself has come and gone so that's i don't know if i buy this but th- that's the, the that's one argument for thinking that we should invest at least a little bit of our time and scientific resources in looking for techno signatures mm. because they might have this incredible longevity yeah far more than the the biosphere that actually produced them and then in that case they might be the most the form of life that we could most easily detect yeah even though they might be the thing least likely to be produced in the first place because we imagine the most biospheres are just going to be microbes mm. if techno signatures are produced by even one civilization yeah that decides to propagate their machinery through the universe maybe to you know send out probes to do research or whatever if that's happened only once we might have a much better chance of detecting that well, than sure. all these millions of worlds of microbes well von neumann machines are very yeah. very good at replicating so yeah if if we saw a von neumann machine that would be a pretty good uh, yeah. technology i want to throw out some uh, other technologies if we saw an obelisk like in 2001 <laughs> that'd be good. uh also a gombots i don't know what that is it's this shape so an obelisk is sort of like at one end of the just it, it's just one bracket to the naturally occurring shapes like you never get something so perfectly you never get a perfect perfect cube in nature and the way you can sort of you can get pretty it, close for certain you crystals get pretty close um so the guy who's done work on this is uh gabor de Mokosh, and he points out that if you look at the number of balance points mm. and you use that to f- at, or the number of uh, vertices as well uh you find that things approximate cubes but never quite there and at the other end of the spectrum things approximate the gombots which just weirdly just has one stable and one unstable gap balance point whereas most stuff has um you know at least two and, and uh, okay uh that's something that never occurs and it's, it's so precise like nature can't really manufacture it so i i throw that out i mean the other classic example of the well of a techno signature is is a pulsar hmm. but you know and it, and i mentioned that because it turned out to be really fruitful to look for those things but not because we found right. evidence of an alien civilization, but yeah. we found pulsars. Um, but coming back to Sagan's dictum, I've, I've wandered a bit off a track here. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think it's it's maybe an example of kind of a meme which sounds really good, yeah. but you know, propagates by virtue of its catchiness rather yeah. than its. It's um, got that lovely sort of virtue. formal symmetry to it that makes it sound like it must just be true. It also. Mm, lights upon probably a cognitive bias that we have like mm. i think probably captures something that we do do yeah. but we probably shouldn't do and uh the place that comes to mind is within the interpretations of quantum mechanics is another <laughs> perennial itch i have to scratch the one of the kind of um objections to the many worlds interpretation the everest interpretation is just like you cannot be serious, right? <laughs> and, and I think that is an instance of, come on, that's just too out of this world. Yeah. But actually, um, well, really, you know, 
in many ways it's the the simplest explanation yeah um, and that's what you should be focused on yeah rather than this kind of gut gut reaction gut feel i think somewhere in the uh, in the sort of um, new atheism arguments from the 90s and early 2000s, there was this sort of jokey line about the argument from personal incredulity. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just because you happen to find something difficult to believe has no bearing on whether it's likely to be true or not. Yeah. That, maybe, that, maybe that's putting things a bit too strongly because we, we have certain intuitions for evolved reasons, but in general, um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I feel like we 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 scratched so many of my issues. Like this has done a really good uh, self. But um, I don't know if you have some kind of final thoughts. I thought it was really interesting what you what you mentioned about we sort of need to settle in for the long run yeah. on this. Um, but I'm you know I'm curious about the null hypothesis, as it were, yeah. the, the kind of rare earth hypothesis hypothesis that we are unique in the universe yeah. um, or even if not unique just so rare yeah. that we would not expect to to find any other instances um, part of me hopes that we astrobiology proceeds and keeps on incrementally adding evidence that you know there is life elsewhere we see some exoplanet it's got the right signatures we find more and more evidence and yeah. discard other things that could have produced those signatures but yeah there, there's there's a logical world, at least out there, where that doesn't happen. And in some ways, you know, that, that, that in a way is even more fascinating yeah. because how long would we have to go? Like, it's much easier to produce. You, you just can't produce evidence for the null hypothesis here, right? You can just not find life. Well, you can't prove... I mean, you could prove that it's so rare that... There are certain ways the universe might be mm-hmm. that we can progressively eliminate. So there's a version where every different planet has its own particular form of life that's evolved to whatever the conditions are there. Yeah. This was a plausible hypothesis, yeah. you know, a century ago. Now it isn't. Because, you know, as Sagan said, we don't see silicon-based giraffes strolling around the surface of Mars. I think it was quite religiously motivated, right? People thought if God went to the trouble of creating a world, yeah. he'd put stuff on it. Um, yeah. There's a secular version of the same argument, but it's it's still not a very good argument. It could be that wherever you have liquid water and some source of energy and and nutrients, life appears. That's mm-hmm. another possible world that was maybe getting to the point now of being able to say that's actually not right. Mm-hmm. Um, because it seems as though uh, there is liquid water, at least in the subsurface of Mars, and there certainly was abundant liquid water on the surface four billion years ago, um, and also plentiful carbon and nutrients and energy and so on. Um, and so if there was life on Mars, chances are we're going to find some trace of it. Mm. We have the right approach now to to actually answer that question. And one kind of convenient thing about life is that it doesn't just sit in one place. It spreads and evolves and ends up everywhere. Mm. And so if we don't find any evidence that there was life on Mars in in these four billion-year-old rocks, for me, the simplest and best explanation of that is that life didn't appear on Mars. Mm. You can't absolutely rule out that it maybe didn't appear in some, maybe it appeared in some very local place and disappeared very quickly. And but I think if life appeared at all, it probably spread everywhere because that's what life does. I mean, on the Earth, every single habitable environment pretty much is inhabited. Mm. We can get to the point where we can say, actually, 
you had these two planets early in the history of the solar system, Earth and Mars. They were very similar. They both had all the right conditions for life. And only one of them actually became inhabited. Mm-hmm. And so now we can eliminate the scenario where just having water and nutrients and energy and so on is enough. Which means the whole universe then looks different. Mm. Because it means all these habitable planets that we may find orbiting other stars, uh, we don't have any actual, actual good reason to think just because they're habitable they're actually inhabited. Yeah. And so we can make progress in this way. Even if we can never absolutely say, you know, we've searched we've searched everywhere because we can't search everywhere. Yeah. And similarly, you know, we only have to find life once on another planet. Well, yeah. And then the whole universe looks different. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't think these... I think but there are several different null hypotheses about how life might be distributed, only one of which ultimately is that there are, there's just no life at all anywhere. Uh, that last one maybe is impossible to prove, but we can certainly work towards it even if we never reach it kind of like an asymptote I can pretty much prove that there is life somewhere because I'm looking at you right now yeah okay anywhere (laughs) else else. I forgot the word else (laughs) yeah I thought you might have been in some kind of simulation argument but I think even the simulation argument presupposes that there was probably some life to (laughs) create the simulation we could all be brains in a jar that's true we could Um, be a Boltzmann brain and that probably wouldn't be life I I think um, I think I agree also that non-detections are just as interesting as detections. Mm. Um, One big motivation for doing astrobiology is to get a clearer sense of how, as I said at the beginning, how life as we know it fits into our bigger picture of our understanding of the universe and how we ourselves fit into our bigger picture understanding. Are we an anomaly or are we the usual thing that crops up in the right conditions? Yeah. And either answer, as you say, is very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think either answer would be it's weird. It's a situation which I think either answer would completely change our view of the world, which, which seems wrong. Because we yeah, should... I don't know about that, actually, because I think if you ask people, most people already kind of have a hunch that life probably exists elsewhere. Right. And it doesn't seem to change. It doesn't seem to be important to them that they have this hunch. It no. doesn't seem to entail a radical lifestyle change or mm. I don't know. It's a bit like we, we could have said all the same things about God. Right. If God exists, then holy shit. If God doesn't exist, then holy shit. Yeah. But one of those things must be true. Yeah. And pretty, everyone believes one or the other, pretty much. And yet, um, we all seem to just carry on our lives much the same way, more or less. Yeah. At least um, in our model of civilization. So I don't know. I think sometimes people exaggerate how how important the discovery of extraterrestrial life will be. I'm not even sure it would be in the news for more than a week, to be honest. <laughs> um I'm not as cynical about this as some people. There was an event once where there was somebody representing the UK Space Agency, mm-hmm. um, a civil servant, and he said this incredibly cynical thing about how actually most people out there care more about what's going to happen in the next episode of EastEnders than whether there's life on Mars. <laughs> and I really didn't like it, but I'm not... I don't know, he might be right. Yeah, you know, I think there's a sense in which I don't disagree, in which, you know, we have these everyday concerns. Yeah. And yet there's a sense, maybe the same thing happened when uh, Copernicus was like, hey, you know, it's actually the other way around. Yeah. Right. But in the long view, uh, it was massively important. But for people living at the time. Exactly. They're probably like, oh, yeah, where am I going to get my my gruel from? (laughs) Um, But yeah, in in the long view, maybe that's the it would be an incredible discovery. Yeah. I just don't expect it to. um, I think it's going to it will probably be a bit anticlimactic in some ways for people that actually live through it. Mm. even though if in the long term it might really change the future of humanity. Well, setting us up like that, 
we're not going to be disappointed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, this has been a, a real pleasure. I've, um, yeah, I particularly enjoyed looking around your, your labs and saying that this, this isn't all just uh, writing the Drake equation on the board over and over and no. trying to think through. We, we, do, we, do, we do actual science. Do actual science, yeah. yeah. I can confirm there are microscopes. <laughs> there it is. Brilliant. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Sean. Uh, well, thanks great. for having me along. It's been really fun.